We spend so much of our time these days squabbling over what's right in front of us. The latest provocation that we see on Twitter, the latest political crisis, the latest thing that a politician we don't like said, the latest outrage that we hear about happening from people we don't like, the latest triumph from people we do like. It's hard sometimes to step back and to have conversations about the ocean that we're actually swimming in. You know the old parable of the the two young fish who are swimming along and the old fish swims past them and says, how's the water today, guys? And as the old fish swims away, one of the young fish says to the other young fish, "Hmm, what's water? It's hard to have those conversations about the water about the things that we don't necessarily pay attention to in our day-to-day life. One of those things is the nature of the democracy that we live in, how it's structured, and how parties control it. That's a conversation for today. It's a conversation whose time never seems to come, but that's more urgent than ever. It's a conversation that ruffles feathers at the highest levels of politics. It's a conversation that is, in short, uncomfortable. Welcome to this week's episode, a beautiful, brainy, technocratic wonk fest about how to fix American democracy. Uh, President Joe Biden is uh, pushing through some big, audacious reforms, infrastructure, huge spending bills. He's really shooting for the stars. And yet part of the conversation is not a reform of the ways in which America has become less democratic than most democracies. Think about the electoral, we all know the electoral college, right? Uh, you know, where Donald Trump loses by millions and millions and millions of votes. And yet, if just a handful of voters in three states had voted for Donald Trump, then he would have won the 2020 election. And we all know that he lost to Hillary Clinton by millions of votes and still won in 2016. Uh, Al Gore won the popular vote in 2000, but George W. Bush uh, was uh, became president, and this is a recurring thing. So there's the electoral college, which is you know its own its own tidbit of weirdness. Then there is the Senate, which understandably is supposed to represent smaller states. But we're at the founding of the Constitution, uh, the Senate, the difference in size between various states was not great. You know, the smallest state was a quarter or a fifth the size of the larger, of the most populous state. Now it's orders of magnitude. Now there are tiny, itty-bitty states that nobody lives in, Wyoming, and other states like California. And senators are much more powerful than they used to be, partly because of the party system, which is something that we're going to discuss on the show today, and partly because of the filibuster, which is something we won't discuss because it's too frustrating. Uh, then you've got gerrymandered districts, Then you've got voter suppression laws that close down polling places and make it really hard to to prove that you are who you say you are and introduce ID rules that allow you to use, you know, your gun ID as a form of ID, but don't allow you to use your student ID as, as a form of ID. Funnily enough, these particular laws tend to be written by Republicans uh, and gun owners vote Republican and students do not. Uh, And so there's all of those problems that we all know with American democracy, but maybe the fundamental problem that is not being addressed is that the party system, the system of having rival political parties with one that sits in loyal opposition whilst the other governs, which is an old-fashioned parliamentary conception of representative democracy, that that was not built into the American system. It doesn't belong there. It's superimposed onto the system and it gums up everything. That's the position of today's guest, John Opdyke, who is a fascinating person to talk to because he thinks about the details and the structures of American 
uh, political life in ways that reveal how fucked up they are, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, I won't preempt this too much. Um, it's somewhat wonky, but that's all right. You're a smart person. You can handle you can handle wonk. Um, the questions that that arise here are things that'll be worth noodling on, including a, the st- sort of strategic question that John puts to me about how you enact large scale reform of the whole structure of a political system when there are so many more pressing things for people to be looking at in, at any particular time and place. Uh, Put on your your Wonka hat. Enjoy this deep dive into how we might reform the entire American political system to make the world's greatest democracy more democratic, to make it live up to its name. Enjoy my chat with John Optike, the president of Open Primaries. Guns. Border control, it seems like we have a lot to learn from you, and yet we are not particularly interested in any of it. You know, your your episode on guns I found fascinating because in some ways the experience I had was listening to someone talk about rational, logical, thoughtful like ways to approach this and possible solutions and correlations between gun ownership and violence, and yet we can't do anything about those things in this country because we're not capable of addressing these things in that way. I feel like we're coming into your wheelhouse, John. Well, you know, it's why I do what I do. I don't, I'm not involved in changing the political system because it's fun, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or, or I'm a wonk or a nerd. I'm involved because there's these ways in which our country, it's stopped growing. It's, it's gotten, Uh, calcified. It's gotten rigid. It's gotten, you know, there's still tremendous vitality and innovation in, you know, certain aspects of our business life, our cultural life, but politically policy, it's like a petrified piece of wood. And I mean, you've been talking about this a long, a long time before the current crisis. Yeah. No. And I think, I mean, there's, there's, this is something almost no progressives want to look at seriously, but I think there is a a direct relationship between Obama and Trump in the sense that the American people elected Obama, including millions of people that that eventually voted for Trump. They elected Obama, one of the brightest. I mean, you could not find a more kind of gifted, progressive, forward-looking, turn-the-page-of-history politician in America, right? Mm. And his whole thing was hope, change. We have to get beyond the the Clinton-Bush dynasties. We have to move America forward. He goes to Washington, D.C., and we have eight years of the worst partisanship since 1800. And I think people looked at Trump and they said, okay, we, we sent our, our Rhodes Scholar to Washington, and he couldn't do anything. So let's send our drunk uncle <laughs> to Washington who's going to take a shit on the, the White House floor and offend everybody. Maybe he can shake things up. Mm. Trump didn't come from Mars. I mean, I, again, most people disagree with me, but he was very connected to a certain dismay that the best and the brightest in this country could not fix Washington. I, I don't think it's true that most people disagree with you. I think there's an, there's an elite class of Twitterati uh, progressives who just think that uh, he is just a, yet another expression of uh, a timeless instinct in American uh, national life of kind of white yeah. reactionary uh, insular racism. And in that they might be true, but one has to then ask the subsequent question, well, why, why did that, why did that figure manage to, instead of corralling only 5% of the vote, why did he get the second largest number of votes in 2020 of any candidate who's ever run in the history of the United States, excepting one who happened to be Joe Biden? Uh, you know, so then you have to, then you have to say, why is that not just a fringe element? Why is it looming so large? And that's where we come to, I think your point about it, it being, it's speaking to a genuine dissatisfaction and a total detachment that a lot of Americans feel, especially in the Rust Belt and in parts of the country that aren't doing so well economically, where there's a sense that that K Street lobbyists and uh, and Wall Street have just got the whole system stitched up. And they're not entirely wrong. They're wrong about, I think you and I think that they're wrong about the solution, but we probably don't think that they're entirely wrong about the problem. I agree. Okay, give, us a, give listeners then a rundown of, of who you are and what you propose. Sure. Broadly. 
So my name is John Updike. I'm the president of Open Primaries. It's a, a national organization uh, working to enact nonpartisan primaries around the country. By nonpartisan, I mean instead of a Democratic primary and a Republican primary, you have a public primary. All the candidates run, and the top two or the top three or the top four, depending on the state, move from the primary to the general election, regardless of primary uh, of, of party. And what this does is it creates a whole new dynamic for voters and a whole new dynamic for candidates. It, it relinquishes the party control. I mean, if you, if you watch Trump's speech, um, during the kind of period between the, 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 the capital insurrection or riots or melee, whatever you have, and the impeachment, he talked explicitly about primarying. It's become a verb. Mm. Every Republican that was not loyal to the Trump brand. His basic position was if you if you go against my wishes, I'm going to primary you, which means in these closed party primaries in which you get 5 to 10% voter turnout in which only Republicans are allowed to vote, you can you can determine the outcome with just a handful of people and some money. And here's a dirty little secret about American politics, Josh, is that 85% of the members of Congress get elected in the primaries, not mm. in the general election. The general election is not competitive for 85% of the country. Uh, in in so, the House or in the Senate or both? In the House. The Senate's right. a little more competitive because these are statewide races. But in the House, there's everybody knows this. There's Democratic districts. There's Republican districts. There's about 40 to 60 districts in which there's some actual vying for whether it's going to be a Democrat or Republican. The rest of them are safe seats. And so whoever wins the party primary is the, is the winner. And so you end up with a, a Congress of people that are not accountable to their constituents. They're accountable to the 5 to 10% of Democrats or Republicans in their district who vote in primaries. And it totally distorts the incentives, the methodology. There's, there's so many members of Congress that will never – sign their name to a piece of legislation if a member of the other party is is on it because that looks bad to their primary voters not to their constituents their constituents mm. are like great you're getting things done and maybe but not even to the majority of like the it. primary voters but ju to just enough of the farthest flank of the most extreme right. primary voters to tip the election so I, we hear right. a lot john about gerrymandering in the states and yeah. when i tell people in australia that uh, the electoral map is drawn not by an independent electoral commission, but in many states by the party that's in power. So whoever happens to be in power when the census drops every 10 years just gets to draw the lines in whatever way is advantageous to their own party. People's eyes open and go, well, that's obviously a recipe for disaster. Why would you ever right. set up a system that way? Because in Australia, right. there's an independent electoral board of, of wonky nonpartisan demographers who try to figure out how electoral maps should shift as populations grow and, and move. Um, are you sort of doing an end run around the problem of gerrymandering by saying, uh, yes, gerrymandering may be bad, but it wouldn't be so bad if within those safe seats, everybody had a say in who the candidate running for the safe party is? I wouldn't say it's an end run. It's part of the same fight. So primary reform is part of a much broader effort to end partisan gerrymandering, partisan control of the presidential debates, partisan control of the Federal Election Commission, partisan control of boards of elections, partisan control of campaign finance boards, of ballot access rules. I mean, it's not just gerrymandering where the politicians get to draw their own lines. It's the presidential debates where the candidates get to determine the rules for being in the debates and they make sure that only a Democratic or Republican candidate ever qualifies. There's, there is a level of conflict of interest at every level of American politics. People in Australia and England and you know who have parliamentary party-based systems don't quite get this about American politics. It's not designed to be run by political parties. That's not the design of the system. Let's just take these things one by one then so that we don't jump too much all over the place and start with open primaries. The argument that one might make against having an open primary is, hang on, it, aren't, aren't the people who aren't members of the party just going to try to spoil it? Like, why should it? Why should a Republican have to pander to 
people who are never going to vote for them when in in their primary like if you're a democrat if you're if you believe in socialism that's fine but you don't get to pick who the republicans elect what if they want a really really right-wing capitalist isn't that their right well that's a that's a good argument and in fact i agree with it um but there's two problems one then why is the if these are private elections like you just described an elks club election or a rotary election where it's a private association and they get to determine their own leadership, of course. But why are we the public then paying for this? Why is this a publicly administered election, right? That's problem number one. Problem number two is that your framework, the way you're articulating that, is that there's such a thing as a democratic primary and a Republican primary. What I'm talking about is that you have a primary. It's not to select party nominees, it's to select which of the candidates go from round one to round two. Right. And in that situation, you just have all the candidates on the ballot and all the voters get to vote. So there's no spoiling of anything because there's no proprietary process. Mm. It's a public process. And then if, if you, the parties want to have a, yeah, a convention, yeah. go do it. Right. You know, be you're a private group, do whatever you want. So Endorse. they could run their own if the public if the parties want to use their own funds to run their little yeah. Elks Club uh election and have as many people involved in that in that primary as they want then they can and then that right. person who they put up can run in essentially what you're saying what you're proposing in an open primary it might be even be helpful not to call it a primary for some people i mean it's it's a runoff election basically you're talking about having an election right. before the main game to figure out i mean some countries do this like france has runoff elections right. where you need to get a uh, you know a certain threshold of the votes but anyone can anyone can throw their hat yeah. in the ring in the in the first rounds and they invariably and get then you go to the out. second round yeah. yeah uh so you could do it you could do it that way and then not be giving any public funds to the parties yeah the parties would love that the, yeah believe me they, <laughs> they oppose it everywhere it's on the ballot in fact we had a referendum on the ballot in florida it was a heartbreaking loss we got 57 percent of the vote we got more votes than biden or trump but in Florida, you need 60% to change the rules, not 50. So we got 57% and lost um, to go from a partisan primary to a nonpartisan primary. But the day that we qualified for the ballot, and it cost $8 million to get on the ballot with all the signatures we had to gather, we were sued the day, not the day after, the day, by the Democratic Party of Florida and the Republican Party of Florida. Uh, to kick us off the ballot. They didn't even want the voters to have any opportunity to weigh in on this. So the funny thing about the parties is that they fight tooth and nail. You know, They call each other fascists and communists. But when you threaten their privileged status in our democracy, they have no problem joining forces and coming up with legal arguments against you. And uh, it, it, it reveals their true colors. They are, you know, billion, billion, multi-billion dollar entities. And they've morphed from kind of, you know, organizations that involved citizens, including immigrants, that kind of integrated Americans into the political conversation. I, I could argue the parties played a very positive role in doing that. But now they're self-perpetuating uh, institutions that are simply about maintaining their power. And again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Think about that happens in every area of life. I mean, the Republican Party was born out of the anti-slavery movement in this country. It had a noble beginning. But now they just, they don't believe in anything. And don't be confused about all their rhetoric on issues. They don't believe anything. They believe in winning and staying in power. Now, maybe I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. There, no, so. you don't sound like a conspiracy <laughs> theorist. You just sound like incredibly cynical. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled because these are extremely powerful opponents. I've done battle with them, and I've, I'm cynical in that I am not at all confused about the ability of these institutions to stay in power. As inept as they are at but solving let me, the real hang on. Who's the who is the they and who is the institution here? Because I understand that you have these huge clunking artifices of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, or in Australia, Labor and Liberal, or 
yeah. the UK, the the you know the Tories and and the Labour Party, and these are uh, anachronistic and they are cumbersome, and they enforce their their kind of hegemony in ways that can be unconstructive. Yeah. And yet, are they anything more than just a, a paper tiger, than just a piece of scaffolding into which the people send their roiling complaints and anxieties in, in the sense that one could have said in 2015 that the Republican Party is unresponsive to the wishes of middle America and has become alienated from its kind of working class, uh, you know, Reagan coalition of voters and has turned into a party of Mitt Romney's and fancy high hat uh, lawyers. Like who was Mitt Romney's vice presidential candidate who was going to be the next big thing in the Republican Party? Oh, it was Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, right? I mean, Paul Ryan was supposed to be like the avatar poster right. child of what the Republican Party had become, slick, good-looking, and interested right. only in tax cuts. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Trump comes barreling in, and the whole party gets overturned, and everything the party tries to do by putting up you know, 16 different candidates who are all cookie-cutter versions of the same bullshit against Donald Trump gets swept away with the force right. of his voters. So, you know, what, what does your, how does your vision of a, of a strong party system withstand that hurricane? Well, that's a great question, Josh. And I think that, you know, and, and part of why I don't think I'm cynical is that I think the American people are pushing back and they have been for a number of years. I mean, they, at least since Ross Perot got 20 million votes in 1992, the election of Obama, people forget this. Obama took on Hillary Clinton. Mm. Obama was not anointed. Obama galvanized a left-center-right coalition, mostly left of center, but he had some NPR Republicans in there, a lot of independent voters, to say Hillary Clinton is uh, bad for this country and we need to do things in some new ways. He beat her. And that was tapping into a desire among the American people to go somewhere new. Similarly, Trump thrashed, You're, you said it perfectly, all these stuffed suits, all the Jeb Bushes, all the kind of Republicans who are used to throwing a little red meat to the Tea Party, but then going to the country club and cutting their deals. And the, and, and the Republican base said, screw you, we're going to go with the crazy guy. Now, I don't like Trump. I've lived in New York for 30 years. I, I, I know Trump as a, as a fraud and a conster. But I don't think people that voted for Trump are racist, xenophobic, horrible humans. I think they're people looking to desperately make some change. So what you're pointing out, Josh, is that the parties are not omnipotent. They're, they have vulnerabilities. They have weaknesses. But right now, those challenges are, are still being absorbed. I mean, think about the Republican Party absorbed Trump. Now, you could say that another way, that Trump took over the Republican Party. Absolutely. They didn't have a choice. I mean, they absorbed Trump like a gazelle absorbs a lion. <laughs> you know, <Right>. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but yes, and, it, it, but it's, and I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong. I think it's that the, the, that the, the whole way that the parties have set up American politics is that even when they get taken over, they do the taking over. It's mm. fascinating. There's it's no there's no super party way of affecting change in America. And and this is this is just I'll say uh, the largest group of voters in the country are independents. They're people that aren't members of political parties. And and there's this fascinating thing going on. The the, the day after the insurrection, the Gallup poll had the number of independents in the country is fifty percent larger than both parties combined. But they explain that away. The pollsters, the, you know, the, the, the Washington industry, they say, well, these independents are not really independents. They're Democratic leaners and Republican leaners. So they find these creative cultural ways to get everybody back mm. into the two-party framework. And what they um, mean, what the pollsters mean when they say that the spike in independence is not real independence is that if there were an election held today, those independents would vote for a party. Therefore, they're really party loyalists. But of course, they'd vote for a party because what else are they going to vote for? 
because right. the parties are the only thing to vote for. Imagine if you were at home and you got a poll, you got a call from a pollster, and he said, uh, Mr. Zeps, do you have time for some questions? You say, sure. Uh, question. I would never prefer, say such a thing. I guess, but you know, maybe he gets the wrong number. <laughs> okay. okay. Do you prefer, uh, you know, uh, fried chicken or, uh, you know, veal asabuco? And you say, well, actually, neither. I'm a vegetarian. And they say, okay, fine. But if you had to choose between veal asabuco and fried chicken, you're like, but I'm a vegetarian. Don't you respect that choice? No, no, no. I need you to be either a veal or an asabuco or a, a, a fried chicken. And that's what they do with independence. They insist that you can call yourself an independent, but you have to make a choice in who you vote for, thereby negating the whole activity of raising your hand and saying, I don't want to be in a political party. I don't like your parties. I don't like how you've structured things. But despite that, I, f I think the American people, going back to gerrymandering, um, I'm close friends with a woman who led the effort in Michigan to get rid of partisan gerrymandering. And she built a, a citizen army in Michigan, opposed by the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, all the good government groups, all the, all the muckety-mucks said this couldn't be done. And she just went out and did it. Mm. And um, there's a lot of interest in going up against the party establishment in this country, liberal and conservative, but it doesn't get talked about that much. It's, it's under the radar um, and it hasn't broken through, but it's out there. Public primaries have been undertaken by some states, including, uh, including a huge state, California, the most populous state. Right. Uh, how's it working there? How, how does it work and what impact has it had? It's been very positive. Um, you know, California had the most dysfunctional and least competitive elections in the country in, in 2000. Um, in the entire decade between 2000 and 2010, there were uh, four politicians who lost their races of any level of, for anything. It was basically you get elected, <laughs> it's a job for life. Wow. And, and two of those four were um, uh, under indictment. Uh, in the Jack Abramoff scandal. Since then, C California now has the most competitive elections in the country, meaning every two or four years, you really have to campaign. And if the voters don't like you, they throw you out. And that's um, just to clarify for people, that's because now when you go to the on a primary election day, which for non-Americans you might not know is a separate election than the, right. than the general election. It happens right. obviously in advance when the parties are going to pick who they're who their candidate is going to be, you can go and, and obviously it has much lower turnout than the general election because only people who are motivated to care about the party go. But now in California, if, if you go to the primary, then you don't say what party you're nope. a, a member of and all of the candidates, regardless of the party, right. appear all on the same ballot and yep. you choose what candidate, everyone chooses what candidates and then those can, are the candidates that will go to the, the general. Yeah. So why hasn't there been a disruption to the party system in California? Why do we still only see Republicans and Democrats? Well, you, you, see, uh, you see a number of independents and third-party candidates doing well. Uh, they, they are still underfunded. They, they still face a whole range of difficulties. I mean, again, the two parties, they control the oxygen we breathe in America. So starting a third party, and I'm friends with many of the people that are doing that, there's no money in it. It's very, very difficult. That said, you have some Greens and some Libertarians and some Peace and Freedom and some independent, unaffiliated candidates that have been able to get into the, the final round. You, you also see this phenomenon where the Greens and Libertarians, let's say their candidate only gets 12% of the vote in the primary. So they don't make it to the second round, but they just got 12% of the vote. And now the two front runners want to go meet with them and say, mm. what do we have to do to get your vote? So actually some of the minor parties and independents are gaining political muscle, even though they're not winning seats, right? Um, competition has go gone up. The black and legislative caucus has doubled in California in the last 10 years. Voter turnout, you, if, if you allow everybody to vote in the primaries and you make them competitive, people will vote in them. And voter turnout in California primaries is double the national average. And you're getting all these great results. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in some of the most liberal areas like Oakland and Marin County, 
typically you'll have two Democrats or a Democrat and a Green are the finalists, not oh, a Democrat really? or a Republican. So the general yeah. election will be held between two Democrats. Exactly. That's interesting. Exactly. Wow. Right. And and here's there was just a study at USC that indicated a very interesting change in politicians' behavior. So if you live in an area of the state where there is a likelihood, not a guarantee, but a likelihood that the two finalists will be either two Democrats or two Republicans, meaning you're in an ultra-liberal area or an ultra-conservative area. If you're a Democrat running in San Francisco and you want to make it to the, the final round, where probably you're going to face off against another Democrat, how are you going to win that election? Well, you better start getting to know the Republicans and the independents who live in your district. Right. And the fascinating thing is in the most liberal district in California, I'm talking Birkenstocks and tie-dye on every street <laughs> corner, there are tens of thousands of, of business owners, of Republicans, of independents. Typically, in the most liberal district, it's only 50% Democrat. The other 50% are independents and Republicans. And so you end up with these, these, these um, politicians like Ro Khanna, who was Bernie Sanders' chairman, co-chairman of his presidential campaign. He, he's a Democrat, very progressive. This guy has relationships across the board with all the business people, the conservatives, the independents in his district, because that's how you win. Right. So you end up with politicians that are not, they're not in these little echo chambers. That's fascinating. So it's actually yeah. less about the mechanics of democracy and more about what kind of candidate you're encouraging for, what kind of candidate the system yeah. is encouraging for. And in a closed, exactly. gerrymandered, closed primary, which in which only the party loyalists vote, right. You're encouraging people to pander to the most extreme v views in their own party, and to and right. and to say the hell with everybody else. Uh, exactly. Whereas if it's open, and I mean, it's extraordinary to me, coming from a, a very party system, from a parliamentary system which is predicated on parties, that you would have candidates from the same party running against each other yeah. in uh, primary here and in the UK and other parliamentary democracies, all of that happens behind closed doors. And right. not only would you never have two members of the same party running against each other, you might have coalitions that, that, that stitch up agreements and say that we will never, you know, or very, very rarely run candidates against each other from these two parties. I mean, Australia is governed by one of the world's oldest political coalitions between the Liberal Party, the Conservatives, and the National Party, which is the sort of farming rural and regional party. And they've been in a coalition for over a century. And wow. uh, yeah, and they won't run against each other, right? If you're in the right. if you're in the bush, you you vote, you know, either Labor or National. If you're in the city, you vote either Labor or Liberal. And the Liberals and the Nationals, you know, the most popular party is the Labor Party almost in, at almost every election. But because of this coalition that it faces, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's out of power most of the time, right. which is, is, yeah, is interesting. I mean, it, it also raises the question about the voting system that you use. Like right. uh, here we have what we call preferential voting, which Americans call ranked choice voting. Right. So that if you, which means that you put a number next to each of the candidates on the ballot and if your number one is not, doesn't get over a threshold, then they go to your number two and then they go to your number three and then they go to your number four. So no matter who, no matter what, how tiny the voter is, the, sorry, the candidate is who, or how unpopular the candidate is that you put it as number one, your vote won't be wasted. So you don't get that, oh, I'm throwing yeah. that, that vibe of and I'm throwing my vote away on a third party candidate. Yeah, it's catching on in the US. In fact, we just passed a ballot referendum in Alaska just six months ago that got rid of the party primaries. There's now a top four. So you have an open nonpartisan primary, the top four candidates go to the general election, and then you rank them. Mm. You'd use rank, you use a ranked choice ballot in the general election. And that's a new model of combining nonpartisan primaries with ranked choice voting that we're hoping to bring to a lot of different states in the US. So you're right though, it's, it's, a, it's not a parliamentary system. You know, we, we, we're not set up that way. And that's why things like California's top two, because they're so counterintuitive and so unusual, and in some ways they don't make sense why I think they're growthful. Because we're, we're giving like some kind of shock system yeah. 
to I mean, the American I, I political wonder, life. I'm trying to figure out if a parliament, if a truly parliamentary system where there are no primaries at all, is better or worse than the Amer- than the closed primary American system because it's certainly less democratic. I mean, in, in Australia, you don't get a say over who the candidates are at all. That's all through right. party backroom deals. Now, the downside of that is it's not very democratic. You're just presented with candidates from various parties and you get to you get to vote for whoever it is that they've right. put up. On the other hand, the party knows a lot about its elect about each electorate and knows who is going to appeal the best to that particular electorate. So you do have very experienced political minds sort of hand picking the the candidates who care about the things that you that your electorate presumably cares about to so they're going to do the best in in that electorate, and it also means that you don't get Trump because the you know you the only people who you have an opportunity to ever vote for are people who've already been pre vetted by the establishment. Uh, so Trump just wouldn't have been allowed through. That's the upside. Right. The downside is you also don't get Obama because, as you yeah. pointed out earlier, you know to my American to my non American friends who who say, "Oh, how could a country as great as America elect an idiot like Trump? Like, what kind of a system?" do they have in place that allows that, I always say the same system that allowed Obama. I mean, Obama right. would never have gotten through in a parliamentary democracy. He wasn't experienced enough. He would, he would have been told to, to stand, at the, stand at the back of the line and wait his turn and, and do his clock his years in the Senate. Um, oh, is that your dog crashing something in the background? or is uh... Yes, he's being, he's being <laughs> naughty. I love it. Also, why do you keep, why is there such focus in the States on registering to vote? Why do you have to keep registering? It seems like this is all part of the whole, I don't know, question that foreigners often, like myself, often yeah. have about the kind of voter integrity and voter suppression and so on. In Australia, I think, I guess when you turn 18, yeah, you you do register to vote, but I think it just happens, I think it happens when you get your license, you're invited to register or something, and then it's for the rest of your life. Like, you don't have to be going right. out and registering. When I keep hearing Americans, are, you know, they're going out to register people to vote. I don't quite understand it. Who are these people who are being registered? Are they all people who just turned 18? Uh, or moved, uh, moved to a different state because it's, it's, each state has its own database. It's not a national database. Right. Changed address, you know, were released from jail and their probation is up and they're now eligible to vote again. Um, there's like a lot of different reasons why people are not registered to vote, but you're so right. In fact, if you look at the history of voter registration in this country, Voter registration was designed to decrease the vote. They, they literally created voter registration as a way to make sure that only certain people voted. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know why the registration even – yeah, that's right. I yeah. mean, if you think about it, if you wanted to maximize the democracy, then – I mean, you know, you know who people are. Like they've got a social yeah. security number. They've got a birth certificate. Uh, why right. wouldn't you just send them a letter when they turn 18? Right. Like presumably they're paying taxes. The IRS has their has – their, info you, you know you could just right. auto register them and send them a letter saying if you want to opt out of our democracy well you don't even give them an opt out option i mean it's not like you have to vote in the states you don't get penalized like like here where you supposedly get a small fine for not showing up at the polls just register them and then if they get to the polling booth and they've moved since you're you're registered then they can just update their address and show their new driver's license yeah exactly now can i ask you a question josh yeah so this is something that I struggle with, and I'm a big fan of your show, and I, I want like an honest answer from you, because one experience that I have is that there is a, a way in which people make a distinction between the real issues, um, you know, all the things you talk about, all the uncomfortable conversations about policy and politics and the culture wars and so forth. And then these kind of process issues, mm. like the, 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 and I think I I think that the the movement that I'm a, a part of hasn't bridged the gap between those two things. There is still kind of a ghettoization of these process discussions. But do do you see that? Am yes. I making that up? No, definitely. It? I definitely see that problem. I definitely see that problem. I mean, this was a problem to some extent that I thought, was it Pete Buttigieg who made a big deal out of process in the primary? Do you recall A little that? bit. He, a little was bit. One of I the mean, candidates Obama I remember did, talking Bernie about. Did in certain ways. Um, yeah. Various candidates do when it serves their self-interest and then they forget about it when yeah. it doesn't. 
I think it is a pro- I think it is a big problem. And I mean, it's a anytime you're talking about structural reform, I think it has to be taken out of the hands of everyday political discourse. Like, I don't think it's a problem to have to not be part of the flotsam and jetsam of the everyday cultural and and political conversation like there are things that have to be done right now against coronavirus and to resuscitate the american economy that it's important to talk about and there will always be such things that are more important or at least more pressing to talk about than the stuff that you're working on so i don't think i don't think you need to be uh, to regard your own project as as competing with those things i almost feel like it's more like something um it's more like something like human rights where you know you don't come up with an international convention on human rights by running a political campaign on it and trying to persuade voters that yeah. they should do something about it in the next 3 months that's something where you need um a, a, the the space to be able to reflect so this sort of stuff i mean i think a presidential candidate needs to come along and go okay we're going to have like a democracy kind of review uh, that will give recommendations about how we could reform the system, and you know that has to then then you have to get your your sort of learned experts to come up with what those reforms would be, and people like you can play a role in that. But I think you're right that it's tricky. It's a tricky sell if you're competing against things that hit hit people's health or hit pocket. Yeah, it's, it is. It is tricky, and it's also like I I'm a progressive. I, I'm a. That's where I come from. That's my background. For me, political reform is directly connected to the fact that we're the richest country in the world, and we haven't been able to touch poverty in generations because we have a political way of addressing that issue that's designed not to solve it. But I can't draw a direct line between generational poverty and the way we do primaries. That would be dishonest of me. Right. And I think that's kind of like I, I and others kind of struggle and grapple with how do you turn this conversation about revamping American democracy into something that's very relevant to the health and development and growth of the country, not just nerdy mathematical formulas that say this system is better than that system, you know, mm. but it's hard. It's hard. I'm not sure how much you need to, in the same sense that I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, Boeing or Pfizer need to worry too much about what people, you know, about electoral politics and about votes. Like, they just do their thing and they find a way to get it enacted. And, like, it's almost a field of expertise where people – this is what – troubles me about democracy frankly like not everything you said that america is like this great democracy and we have to sort of restore the credibility of of the people's wishes being our guiding principle i don't know man the last five years have made me sour a little bit on the people's wishes on the purity of the people's wishes like i know there's a lot a lot that's fucked up about american democracy and, and the people's wishes are actually being thwarted when you look at you know the filibuster in the senate basically giving something like 17% of the US population that votes for the 51 senators in the smallest states sorry 60 yeah. senators in the smallest states a, a veto over all uh, uh legislation but uh I, you know i think the uh, certainly the past 12 months if not the the past 5 years have with brexit and trump have given me an appreciation and especially the coronavirus of of institutional wonky technocratic expertise uh you know i think the world needs more i don't know more public servants and fewer populists and so to the extent that democracy will yield populists and panderers there is a case to be made for uh smoothing smoothing out its edges with the ballast of uh of a strong undemocratic kind of public service and so to some extent i i view your project as part of that as part of a kind of meta project of clever people trying to figure out how to reform things and uh i I think you you can find punchy slogans like the fact that most democratic countries have election commissions and and electoral rules 
that are insulated from the political players and that the US doesn't, that in the US the political players get to write the rules, I think is a compelling a compelling point. But like the fact that the the fact that the US political system is so awash with cash from corporations is a compelling political point. And with the exception of occasional bills like McCain-Feingold, which I don't even think, did that get overturned or something? I mean, like, you know, we got, know- There was a workaround in the Supreme Court. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. The Supreme Court. Yeah, well, that throws another another wrench in the works, doesn't it? Uh, what the Supreme Court is going to uphold. Uh, you know, these are these are big- things with lots of vested interests in the status quo that need to kind of be be tackled uh separate and apart from the the daily populist political grind but that doesn't leave that's probably not very reassuring for you to hear no i you know it's interesting the way i think about it is that i i I agree with you that there is this this kind of technocratic almost like an engineering approach to retooling American democracy so that there, there is, as you're saying, you know, it's just designed better and functions better. But I don't think that can be the whole picture. I really don't. I, I think that the American people have to grow up. We have to get smarter. We have to get better. We have to grow. And right now, our democracy doesn't help people grow as civic, political, interconnected people. We're kind of prey to this jingoistic tribal garbage that we get fed 24-7. So I think that at its best, at its best, we combine the kind of technocratic engineering solutions with mass organizing of the American people to grow and take on more responsibility. And I think that, that combination of things is really vital. What role does the media play in all this? I I don't know, and I don't worry about the media. <laughs> Good. And I don't mean to be an ass. I I just I I just am so tired of conversations where people say, you know, it used to be there were three networks and you could trust the news. Now there's 800 channels and they say whatever they want because of the market. It's like, yeah, that's called capitalism. That's how things work. So if you want to talk about state-run media, which the track record of is abysmal. Maybe the BBC is slightly ahead of the curve on that. But if you're going to have a free market for media, don't complain about what the media does. They're all they're out there to make a buck, and that's what they're doing. I don't know what you could do about it, other than write a check to you know ProPublica and other nonprofit journalists that are doing good investigative work. Well, I mean, you could imagine a, a law that said that if you brand yourself as a news channel, you have to not not uh, intentionally disseminate uh, information that looks like news that isn't true. That wouldn't, yeah, that wouldn't they, fly with the First Amendment. Then they'll say we're not a news channel. We're an entertainment channel. I mean, like, it, it's just, I, I, I fundamentally, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound like an ass. I don't want to sound glib. I can't stand the media. I think that what they do is so shallow and so, I mean, you watch the news for 15 minutes, whether it's Fox or MSNBC, and you're sucked into this bubble in which you think that is reality. And I can't stand it, but Mm. I don't know what you do about it other than turn the channel off. But, well, I mean, but since when has a problem being difficult stopped you from worrying about it? I mean... You're right. That's a fair point. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've just been talking for the last past I, five minutes about no, how insurmountable the, the project that you've devoted your life to is. Yeah, I get that. I, I guess what I would say is I think the opportunity to do something about the political parties is very ripe. I think the opportunity to do something about the media is not ripe. I don't think that they're vulnerable. Now, maybe, maybe ironically, this lawsuit by the voting by Dominion Systems against Fox News, maybe that is actually going to impact on the media more than any crusade to change mm. the media. Is is just getting sued. And just clarify for, for people what that lawsuit is. Well, there's a voting machine company called Dominion, and Fox News uh, and a number of other stations spouted all kinds of crap that they were controlled by Hugo Chavez and were, you know switching votes and being hacked and they they're they're suing fox news for a billion dollars saying you just 
you know, you slandered our business. This was basically Trump's line when Trump was, try- Trump was trying to say yeah. that he actually won the election. There were people on Fox News saying, oh, you know, and the voting machines could have been rigged. And now the voting machine company is like, actually, no. That's, yeah. Yeah. And, and we're holding you accountable for that. Yeah. And now it's very interesting to see a lot of these pundits say, well, I was just giving my opinion or I was, don't trust me. I'm just an entertainer. Mm. So it's a, it is a kind of interesting. And I, I'm, I'm glad you're pushing me, Josh, on my kind of knee jerk cynicism about the media. But I mean, maybe I think that w- changes things. Yeah. And I also think that the public, like public opinion can hold people to account to some extent. I mean, I think. Yeah, I don't know what I think. I think it's putting the cart before the horse to say, we know that we can't do anything about a problem. Therefore, let's not discuss or analyze the problem. Uh, you know, first figure out exactly what the problem is. Like, what is the why is the media in the US? It's not just that there's a, there's a free market in media because there's been a free market in the media for a long time in the US and it wasn't so hyperpartisan. And there's a free market in the media in lots of other countries supplemented by stronger public broadcasters. So yeah, one solution could be to have to expand public broadcasting so that you've got something like the UK and Australia do in the UK where they've got the BBC here, we've got the ABC, uh, and they're the same the same kinds of institutions, uh, you know, which make PBS and NPR in the States look like tiny little you know, sad, flailing tadpoles in a drying up swamp uh, in terms of their funding and influence. Um, so maybe that's part of the solution. Yeah, maybe some rules around, I mean, like, you know, maybe fairness doctrines and things like that. I guess the you're always going to bump up against the First Amendment, which is going to be interpreted by this Supreme Court as being absolute. So you're not going to be able to make any law about what the media can and can't say. So a news organization will be able to spout total bullshit and presumably win uh, when it's right to, and um, perhaps that's just the American, the fate of America. But could you stimulate more smaller independent news organisations? Could you figure out ways of funding internet news better so that as people surf the web, smaller you know news companies are getting micro payments or something from uh, a monthly fee to yeah. to use the internet? Yeah. You know, could you encourage diversity in in various ways? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are there are things one could imagine if one weren't cynical. Well, look at podcasting. I mean, podcasting has created tens of thousands of people that involve their their bases in conversations. Some mm. are good and some are bad. But the whole, you know, Patreon model and GoFundMe and people developing a way to directly fund artists and and content producers. Yeah, that's very yeah, interesting. That's right. You yeah. know, yeah. not just the ad sales, but the developing your your listenership. Yeah. And now Substack, um, I mean, people are going to, you know, conventional journalists who are getting hounded off uh, right. mainstream publications for having unorthodox views or, you know, nuanced views about things that have become hot button cultural I- issues uh, are now finding that people are willing to pay them directly for a monthly subscription to their newsletters and they're making right. an absolute fortune. And so maybe, yeah, m- maybe sort of micro-targeting. I mean, that com- that brings with it its own set of liabilities which is that everyone will have their own news ecosystem news and opinion ecosystem uh which is only going to worsen potentially the fracturing of of culture but um it certainly has upsides in the sense that not everything is being mediated by giant corporations right and also one of the things that i hear a lot from podcasters and podcast listeners is the importance and the, the of 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 trust that there that there are these relationships that are built between podcasters and their bases, whether it's a thousand people or five hundred thousand, where they trust this person, and mm. that's that is a important commodity in a world in which trust is is hard to come by. Yep. Yeah. Um, you emailed me after I had an episode in which we were talking about the word ally and allyship and the way that you're the, the way that that gets abused to, to not mean uh, genuine uh, solidarity with a cause, but to mean the sort of performative aping of all of the correct sounds that you're supposed to make and sort of obedience. And I thought your point was really interesting um, when you emailed me about that. Can you articulate it? Yes, I, I know the ways in which that word gets used in progressive circles. I think the history of that is that there's been so many examples of movements for social justice and for positive progressive change in which the white guys ran the show, right? And people of color and women just felt like the secretaries. And, you know, and that, I mean, the left is some of the most sexist pigs you've ever met. 
right? <laughs> so I think there is kind of a pushback and saying, hey, look, you know, these struggles for liberation, we're not just going to be the symbols on the poster. We're going to lead this. You can be our ally. But I think in some ways, part of what that masks, it's, it's the flip side of the problem in that you end up actually reducing the problem that you're going to address to only affect those people. The racism of America profoundly affects everybody in America, everybody, not just the people most affected by it. And, you know, I, I find I, I've listened to some speeches by James Baldwin from the 60s who talked about how corrosive Jim Crow was on poor whites, how it destroyed them. And that doesn't mean they had it worse than African-Americans. They didn't. They, had, they were a leg up. But that kind of system destroys human beings. So when you talk about allies, you're kind of reinforcing these kind of caste situations. But I also think it's important to recognize there is a history of these movements for social change just being led by the white guys. And so there's kind of a pushback against that. So it's very, it's complicated and I don't want to be glib, but I, in general, I think that, that the, the progressive left in America and in many parts of the world is very caught up in a certain type of taxonomy and political correctness. And that holds back these, these issues in some serious ways, even as I think, for example, the leadership of Black Lives Matter They've learned a lot from ways in which black movements have been co-opted, bought off, infiltrated, sold out by black people and white people. And they've organized themselves in some ways that I think are very sophisticated and brilliant, actually. But that's all. I think mm. the term ally, it actually plays into the status quo, if I had to sum it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the point, the point that you made was that it's, it's, if you want to change the whole framework, then don't, don't name the problem as being owned only by the people who are worst affected by it. You know, name the problem as being a problem for all of us in the sense that, and I mean, you're right that like, I always slap my forehead when we have these conversations and go, of course, I should just be going back and reading James Baldwin in the first place, because there has never been a better person at articulating all this stuff. It's, what's so funny is that the modern the modern race theorists are are quite anti-Baldwin when you listen to what they're saying. They're actually quite anti-Martin Luther King. They're, they're yeah. uh, you know, who These were two guys who were incredibly uh, insightful in their understanding of how corrosive racism is to everybody, that... Uh, uh, and and the concept of allyship, the point that you made that that you were, when you were channeling Baldwin, to me was that that if you if you buy into I will I am an ally, then you accept that a social problem is only a problem for the direct targets of that bias, right. instead of understanding that it destroys your humanity as well, and that for the slaveholder, not crying any crocodile tears for the slaveholder, but the slaveholder was also trapped in a horrendous, pernicious system that destroyed his own humanity. Yeah. It was in his interest to get out of that. It was in, you know, it wasn't in his direct interest to lose his slaves because he was making a lot of money off them, but it was in all slave owners' ultimate long-term interest, all white people's ultimate long-term interests to fight for the liberation of all humans because that is the, you know, that is the trajectory of humankind. So to to say, I'm going to be an ally and bend down before, you know, you're an, kneel and hold my fist up to show my solidarity with you implies that you are the only person who is disadvantaged by the status quo. And that's not a way to find an inclusive, you know, to maximize the number of people who are going to come along for the ride. Exactly. Yeah, that's correct. And it's just important to know the left, particularly the US left has been unbelievably sexist. Yeah. I mean, they've treated women like secretaries. Uh, just You just look at the leaders of the 60s. And I mean, just that's a legacy and it's real. Mm. And, and so you, you can't just kind of push back logically. You have to kind of take in the totality, I think, and kind of understand that, which isn't to say not push back or not argue, but just be a slightly epistemologically humble. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's right. Let's uh, let's wrap up with your long-term prognostications about the U.S. What's your sort of best case and worst case scenario for where America is, let's say, mid-century? Uh, I think something's going to break 
in this country. I think there's going to be a, a rupture. I think it could be positive or negative. Like imagine if Barack Obama had run for president as an independent outside the party system and gotten 100 independents elected to Congress in his coattails. And you, you solved, you broke through the logjam and you regenerate, you, you solved the immigration problem. You regenerated economic development in inner cities. You just, like you kind of brought Americans together and broke down the whole red state, blue state paradigm. I think that could happen as early as 2024. And I think it also might never happen. And I don't think that's the only scenario in which there's kind of this, this qualitative leap forward as a country. But if we don't, if we, if we're not able to break through, I think this kind of stultifying party, two-party control, it's kind of like the American version of Hosni Mubarak, right? It's just kind of a, a, a calcified two-party system that doesn't solve the problems of the country. You know, I think you could get someone who makes Trump look like a statesman and could drag the U.S. into, you know, just barbarism. And I, I, again, I don't, I'm not in the business of prognosticating. I think there's lots of possibilities. I'm optimistic. My experience is that the American people want to make a breakthrough. They want to get through this, this kind of red, blue logjam, but it's hard. Mm. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know when it'll happen. I don't even know if it'll happen, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic by mid-century, we will be a country that's on a very different trajectory, that we're not just an economic powerhouse, we're a developmental powerhouse. I heard my mate Coleman Hughes saying that when you think about red states and blue states and red and, and blue kind of team psychology in the states, he finds it useful to just imagine that red, that red America and blue America were like Sunnis and Shia. And a lot makes more sense if you strip away the content of the beliefs and just regard it as being team sport the way we would analyze any ethnic problem. And I found that chilling because that's functioning in exactly the opposite direction of what you're talking about. And with every year that passes and, the, and as partisanship goes up and as social media algorithms intensify that and as the parties intensify that and the broader media, cable news intensifies that, does it become either it becomes harder and harder to achieve what you're talking about, or you, there's a kind of asymptote or there's a crossover at which it becomes so hard that everybody, that there is that, that smash through point where everybody goes the hell with this. We're not gonna, we're not going to become Romania. You know, we're going to have a, a well-functioning yeah. non-corrupt political system. But here, here's the problem with the Shia Sunni analogy. Imagine using that analogy in a country in which 50% of the people were atheists. Right. And, and yet insisting mm. that the way to understand that country is the Sunni-Shia divide. See, that's, that's mm. where I think more accurately where we are as a country. 50% of the country wants nothing to do with these parties. But the whole political industry says, excuse me, you're either a Yankees fan or a Dodgers fan, end of story. There is no atheism, there is no soccer fans. You have to like the Dodgers or you have to like the Yankees, mm. pick. And that's how we're gonna organize the whole culture, not just the, on election day, that is the culture of America. And it's just not accurate. Yeah. It's not who this country is. I mean, I would also say that in places like Iraq, there are, you know, the majority of people, and you know, even in Syria and you know, Iran, the majority of of people in those countries, these are not places like, you know, the foothills of of Pakistan's northwestern region where everybody has a tribal allegiance. These are places where most people were broadly secular and they might be nominally Shia or Sunni, but right, you know, most right. most people actually weren't fanatics, but the fanatics got hold of the reins and were able to yeah. trigger the tribal identities of people who were otherwise the 50% Not. atheist. So I would say the analogy isn't that dissimilar. Like we look at it from afar and we think, oh, sure. all Shia identify strongly as Shia. Um, the, the challenge is, you know, how do you get people who are sort of nominally just sort of center right or center left not to get dragged into the vortex of madness that's being created, you know, by right. that's being provoked by people on the far flank of their party, prodding them with all of the, all of the news articles and outrages that try to draw them 
to become more and more extreme so that if you're inclined towards conservatism, your feed is full of crazy college kids uh, going nuts with their political correctness and woke trans stuff being shoved down everybody's throats or, you know, Portland ablaze. And if you're on the left, it's all uh, kids being locked in cages on the border and the rise of neo-Nazis you know, storming the the streets, and you know, where do you, where is the countervailing force that that encourages those people not to think of themselves right. and their tribal identities? Well, it's that's tricky. that's in some ways the the emerging independent alternative reform movement, and we're not there yet. We're a combination of disorganized, shut out, discriminated against, sectarian within our own ranks. You know, we're not a full fledged movement, and you're you're so right about that. There's very little opportunity right now to give expression to, to a, new, a new path, a new direction. But the thing I know about American politics is those paths can emerge in two seconds. Mm. And, you have to, and you have to be ready for them. There's a volatility and an, and, a, and an opportunism, in the best sense of the word, about American politics that, that is positive. And you never know when it's going to happen. And no one ever went broke, uh, you know, uh, banking on America. And no one ever got rich uh, you know, going short on America. Yeah. So here's hoping your optimism is borne out. Thanks for your work, so. John. Uh, good luck with it. Thanks, Josh. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Take care of yourself and your rescue dog. Thanks. Thanks.